my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow, And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we're welcoming Rob Timmings, who is going to speak to us about going from the bedside to teaching. Welcome, Rob. Oh, thanks, Liz. And thanks, Jesse, for having me. Really excited. We've been kind of banging around the same virtual circles for a lot of years. And this is actually the first time we've been face to face. So it's I know. awesome. Well, I've been following Injectable Orange forever. <laughs> yeah. And mutually ECT for Health too. So it's, um, yeah, really exciting for a couple of uh, old older male nurses um, stop it, who have been stop in it. social media for a while to kind of meet up and talk about this. So before we get into it, I think we'll rewind a bit um, and go back to your origin story of nursing and kind of how you've got to where you're at now. Okay, golly, it's a 36-year journey now, this year, 36 years. So I trained here at the RBWH, right here. So wow. <laughs> literally <laughs> just up the road. Um, and so... Um, from there into a critical care world, little sojourn into mental health, but I really found my feet and found my passion in emergency and particularly in making sure that when I'm performing my tasks as an emergency nurse that those that are with me are also performing their tasks to meet standards. So I learned very, very early on that I really love that sort of bedside teaching that show the new members of staff how to do certain procedures and so I got into education probably a little bit after I'd done my whole career doing emergency nursing and flight nursing and a bit of hyperbarics and a whole lot of stuff that gave me a, a really great scientific grounding. I think for a lot of the podcast it's probably worth us highlighting that there's education with like lower case E Yep. education is where we're educating yep. and then there's education is an upper case e where we're talking about being a nurse educator having a designated role or in your case actually progressing through to a career and a business in um, nursing education as well so sure so, so we'll try and delineate those things a little bit through the conversation as well well in that case um if we were to have a look at the little the lower KC, I guess I've always been one of those nurses that at the bedside have been uh, involved in teaching I've always loved to do that bedside type teaching. An opportunity was given to me working as a nurse in a remote area in Queensland um, to come back to Toowoomba to work at the Cunningham Centre, Queensland Health's Cunningham Centre, to provide some education and um, in, in acute care education content and particularly rural and remote nurses, preparation of rural and remote nurses. So that's uh, that was my first grown-up nurse educator job where you know you were at that pay point as a nurse educator uh that goes back to 2011 12 ish yeah yeah what i love about what you've just said is that you love teaching at the bedside so you're a nurse educator but you haven't said i love teaching nurses because i actually think a 
a number of, you know, the multidisciplinary team learn from each other, isn't it? It's not just discipline to I, discipline. I'm totally on board with what you just said there, Liz, because um, multi-professional education is certainly the way forward. We've done it for a long time in emergency uh, and in critical care where we've done um, things like trauma teaching or trauma training, um, advanced life support with a multidisciplinary team with nurses and doctors and our paramedics who are coming into the same courses and the same classes. Um, we absolutely need to expand that model because it's really important to bring everybody from the multidis team in to hear the same content, to learn the same set of standards. Otherwise, we're running around like rats in a fire. Yeah. So with, with that um, foundation laid, we're going to just zoom in a little bit on one particular, I guess, skill within in teaching. Um, and we kind of, you've chosen this one uh, largely because this is one that kind of strikes fear into the hearts of a lot of budding educators and is seen as something that is, is a, there's a big, big leap for some people to step from a bedside teaching role into more a platform education role with giving presentations and things like that. So that's kind of where, what we're going to zoom in on for your five topics today. And you know what I actually looked up? It's called glossophobia which is the strong fear of public speaking. And it's the most common phobia in the world and about 75% of people have glossophobia. So let's hope that we can undo some of those stats today, Rob, when we dive into this. So your number one is own your own topic. Yeah, look, if you're going to speak to a group of people, you need to put on armour. And so that armour is you need to know your room, you need to know your layout in the room, how everybody's going to be sitting. Are they sitting like a conference or are they sitting at a round table like we are? Are they sitting in a U-shape? Are they in a simulation room? You need to really own your space. You need to craft and create that learning environment. I won't say classroom because not all learning or presentations are done in a classroom environment, but you need to, you need to own that learning environment. You've got to know your topic. And, and I really mean you've got to know your topic. Not just have a basic Google review of the stuff that you have to talk to a group of clinicians about, but you have to know it inside out and back to front because you know there's that one person in the class who's going to ask you a question that will unravel you if you don't have that depth of knowledge. So it's not just the knowledge on the topic, but the depth of knowledge. And I guess that can only come with experience. One of the hardest things to do is to recognise that it takes a, a, a teaching the same content. Let's say I was teaching cardiac, yep. cardiac emergency presentations. I'm going to have to teach that multiple times to hear all the typical questions from my audience that I might expect. And one day I'm going to get to a space where I'm not hearing a unique question anymore. I know the answers to every question that's going to come at me. It's really rare to catch me out because I think you've got to be prepared. Mm. So you've got to own your topic. Perfect. Yeah, and I think my, that's that's parallels a lot of advice that I've given to people that have been sort of saying, oh, how can I get a bit more confident is at a presentation level, having some things that are real anchors that you just know so well that you're almost looking forward to getting to that. That can help with anxiety management as well. You're going, I cream this bit. Like when I'm talking about like stroke volume and um, and the Frank Starling law, I'm coming up to that. I know this so well. I know how to, I want to articulate it so well. So you get that building confidence of going, that's a few slides up or a few minutes away. 
um, I can kind of get through any questions here that kind of might throw me because I've got this coming up. Is it, and that's kind of the, that the earliest stage as you're on that trajectory to like years of accumulated experience, hey? I got so excited when you said Frank Starling Law. <laughs> There's nothing more enjoyable than explaining Frank and Starling. <laughs> and, you know, I think when you're saying own your own topic, I guess what one of the things I always say to people about presentation is it's also owning your own style. Like Jesse and I are completely different podcasters. Like we, we're often chalk and cheese. I think together we're a good partnership. Agreed. But I never try to be like Jesse and he sure as hell never tries <laughs> to be like me. He doesn't want to. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's sometimes when you admire an educator, if they're a very jovial, entertaining educator that can take things, create a story and a narrative, and that's just not you, you can't fake it, can you? You've really got to own your own topic but within your own skin. Look, we, we all know a really, really good nurse who just can't teach mm. and we also know really, really good teachers who just can't do – they can't walk the talk. Mm. It's it's a rare beast to bring both of those together, to find somebody that's a fantastic clinician and who's just great in front of a class. It's I, I guess that the, the thing that brings those together is you bring yourself to the table. Yeah. If I'm teaching, I want people to know that, you know, I'm I'm not first a nurse educator, I'm 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 first Rob. Yeah. I'm a dad. You know, and, and I'm a husband and I'm a, I'm a nurse and I identify as a nurse and I'm one of you and we talk the same language and I'm not going to try and speak over your head with, with, with jargon and if I do, I'm going to unpack that jargon and make it really, really okay for you to be able to stop and ask questions. I think that you've got to win that audience really early and, and that is a beautiful segue into our second, our second point and that is one of the elements is to be really personable. I yeah. think that that's a, a really important point. All right. So let's dive straight into number two, which is P's and Q's, which is presentation qualities. Okay. So presentation quality, um, you've, you've got to learn presentation skills. Uh, and for many nurses or other clinicians that might have to do a presentation, maybe their first presentation is a handover in our career, you know, handing over to a group of, of other clinicians at the end of the bedside or, or, or in the office. Um, uh, it might be attending a, a, a unit meeting. might be the first time that you have to do a presentation. And everyone gets nervous. That glossa... Glossophobia. Glossophobia. I just love that. Gloss means tongue. So yeah. I, I'm frightened of using my tongue. It, that yeah. makes a whole lot of sense when you look at the Latin. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, glossophobia. Isn't that interesting that that's... <laughs> uh, sorry, this is my ADD kicking no, in. <laughs> it's just really interesting that that's our biggest fear. I mean, more yeah. people fear giving the eulogy than actually being dead. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think you've got to learn your presentation skills and where you get those presentation skills are, I think, by going to lots and lots of conferences, lots and lots of courses, uh, seeing a lot of other presenters and taking elements of what you like from each of those presenters and saying, oh, I really like the way that that presenter dealt with that or the way that they, they, they threw a joke in there or the way that they smiled when I walked in the room. There's a whole lot of that sort of stuff that really comes into, into the presentation skills. So I think that you've got to learn presentation skills. And I like to think that to do that, there's nine Ps. Can I throw the Ps at you? You definitely can. I'm gonna, I know. P all over the place. <laughs> P all over the place. <laughs> right, here we go. Presentation skills, my nine Ps. Um, the first is you've got to have a passion for your topic. 
I mean, I can listen to somebody teaching me how to clip toenails, something I'm not interested in, if they're really passionate about clipping toenails. Mm. Yeah? If you are passionate about your topic, you'll listen to them all day. And you know that you've listened to podcasts or you've listened to lectures on stuff that probably was really dry, but the speaker was engaging. Yeah. Because they were just passionate about the topic. At the end of the day, you wanted to go and learn how to clip toenails. Yeah. Yeah? Perhaps not, but you get the idea. Um, so have a passion for your topic. Um, if you're going to use PowerPoint, and I do, I know it's a little bit old man and old old hat, but I love a PowerPoint presentation I that's done well. And I, I exclusively in my business use PowerPoint. When I'm doing classroom-based or, or, or workshop-based activities, PowerPoint's my go-to. Um, you've got to be the presentation yourself. The PowerPoint's not the presentation. So learn PowerPoint skills. Um, personality, you've got to have some light and some shade. I'm taking a class on a journey. Uh, I'm, I'm making them feel the anguish of somebody sitting in front of them with chest pain. I'm, I'm helping them to to feel the elation of that pain disappearing, of ED and ICU nurses will know the elation of seeing somebody's ST elevations start to flat, flatten out a little bit, you know, the, the, the heart rate coming down, the blood pressure coming up. Um, so when I'm, when I'm teaching about something that's clinical and critical like that, then I, I like to be able to, 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 to really introduce that personality change and, and to change the light and the shade within the, within the presentation. Um, projection, you've got to use visual aids. I really think I like to use uh, a combination of, of visual aids that they can look at on the screen, such as a PowerPoint or a picture or a diagram or a, or a model. Um, I use a lot of whiteboard, so I'm drawing pictures to illustrate really complex sort of physiology, um, but also creating mind pictures for people helping them to visualise a patient that they're going to care for. The ambulance is coming in. I teach a lot in emergencies, the space of emergency. So um, an ambulance has just arrived with a patient uh, who is bleeding from a, from a, a wound on their leg. Uh, can you picture? You know, and, and really helping to create visual pictures. I think that that's important that links into somebody's um, different sorts of learning styles. Yep. Pace. Um, don't talk too slowly and don't talk too fast. You've got to set your pace. Pitch, well, that's using your voice. Uh, and it's also using your... Uh, how would you pitch the content? Am I going to be speaking at, um, at a bunch of very, very senior clinicians about a topic that they already know about and we're just doing a refresher? Or am I taking a set of inexperienced clinicians that have perhaps never heard the content before? Um, pause. I think it's really important to stop in the middle of what you're saying, particularly if it's complex or it's involved, and give somebody the opportunity to really soak in the last phrase that you've just stated. And then progression. And the progression is the, the classic threes. Why are we here? What are we teaching? Uh, what are we saying? And what have we covered? It's that repetition, repetition, repetition. You know, it's a great way for adults to learn. Okay. So lots of things to think about when we're setting up a presentation. Uh, but I love your number three is R, 
which is research your audience. So lots of people research the topic and then they come in and they've got it wrong, haven't they? Oh, totally. I mean, you can know everything about your topic, but if I'm coming in and I'm pitching something at the at an audience that's not ready for my message. I mean, I can I can take you both through fixed law. You know, the rate at which a gas diffuses is inversely proportional to the square root of its atomic weight. But that's meaningless to you if you just wanted to know that certain gases will diffuse into the lung depending on the type of gas that they're mixed with. Put helium with oxygen and it's going to go into the lungs much faster than if you put nitrogen with oxygen is a classic example. What did you get the most out of? So you probably got more out of out of the practical application one, yeah. than 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 the physics that that is underpinned there. So so I think that it's really important to research who you're talking to. But Am I, I going into a room of hostiles? Yeah. I, I just wanted to kind of pick up on that because what what you're saying is, and and I totally agree with this, is that as the educator, when we go back to our owning our topic, we should know. The, the laws, the principles, the theories in great depth that Correct. underpin this. But it doesn't mean that we'd have to then teach those. They Not can be all. a wasted opportunity um, unless we're trying to teach an actual physics class, which is in, in a case where you're researching your audience. But I wanted to make that distinction is the depth of knowledge should be there as the educator of all the underpinning stuff. But then how we translate that should be audience specific, hey? Totally. And, and, and that's really what researching – Owning a topic that was up at the top with O, but you know, researching the audience, knowing what you're going into, your participant group. You've got to identify those special learners. You've got special learners in that class. Who are they? Who are the people that are going to really struggle with the content? Uh, you've got timid people. There are nurses who have probably haven't been to a conference or a seminar before. This is their first time. They don't know whether they're going to be put on the spot and asked questions by you in front of everyone. You've got argumentative You've got people with a power differential. You've got people that have been sent. The, yeah. the people that have been totally sent to prisoners. education to fix them. Yeah. Absolutely. You've also got, I mean, we're seeing, I'm seeing more and more in my classes, quite neurodivergent nurses who yeah. are coming along. Yeah. People who, like me, are on the spectrum. <laughs> and I need more information than what that lecture is telling me. Yeah. And so I'm going to ask questions not to be a disruptive participant, but I'm asking questions because I'm not going to get enough out of what you've just told me. You've just opened a, a hornet's nest and now I need to know more. And that can sometimes be a really difficult participant to deal with uh, to the extent that we might need to say we can, we can have a discussion about that stuff and I can give you more content and detail if I've prepared myself. I can give you more content and detail in the break. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, equally, you know, you, you mentioned kind of the argumentative, the conflictual, the someone who's disrupting – Ah, someone who's fanning on you or someone who's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I really love that. That it can be as equally disruptive to an education session, can't it? Oh, it's, it's sticky and it feels uncomfortable because you know that one person is sitting looking at you with these weird and awkward eyes. I mean, there is that fan moment sometimes. I've been around the block enough that a lot of nurses who will come to my class at the beginning of that introduction, they might say, oh, I've been following you on social media for all these years and I'm finally I'm, I'm finally able to come to one of your courses. And I just, I hate that. I just, I feel really uncomfortable with that. And so sometimes I need to have a little quiet word with them, maybe in the break, just about, let's just keep things at a professional level. Mm, I appreciate the support and it's great that you've been able to follow, but today we're really going to focus on 
the education piece that we're here for. Yeah. But it, but I guess, you know, it, anyone who's starting as a new educator, to think through what would you do if someone keeps disrupting in any nature, how are you going to handle that, uh, particularly if there's uh, a power differential or there's a gender difference or a height difference, uh, you know, all, all of those things can come up and it's worth thinking about before you're actually standing in front of a group. And part, part of that is Liz is attending lots and lots of sessions. Yeah, if you attend lots of sessions and you see how really, really skilled and seasoned educators are or presenters are at handling those difficult people, you, you're able to take those tips with you. Mm. you. You take that with you into your own. And I, I always say if people ask me a really sticky question, I just say, wow, what a great question. I have no idea what the answer is to that. Can anyone help within the room? You know, you don't have to know everything no, all the don't. time. That's exactly right. Um, own what you do know yeah. and, and recognise that you, you're at the end. I, I say I'm at the end of my knowledge bubble. Yeah. I can't answer that question with any great accuracy. I'm at the end of my knowledge bubble. Uh, I, I'll have to get back to you on that. Yeah. You can't fake it till you make it with education. You've got to, you've got to play within your, in your lane, haven't you? Certain participants will make sure that they keep you honest. Yeah. Yeah, but it's quite dangerous to do that too, particularly with novice learners um, because they do integrate that stuff into their mental model for how they approach something. And if and I think we've got a fair degree of uh, responsibility when we're educating as well to go, I don't know, let's go look it up together or um, I, I don't know, but I do know some really good resources on it that I'll share with you later. So your number four is S, which stands for Social Surveys and Seek Support. What do you mean by that? Um, so it's really surveying the system. It's, it's as an educator, connecting with other key stakeholders in that clinical area is really important. If I've been asked by one particular HHS or one particular ward to go and do a presentation to a group of nurses on a perhaps a, a target area or a problem area that they've identified, um, then I need to be able to get all of that background information before I go into, into the game. I can't just go in with my own agenda to teach X, Y and Z. I need to find out what the X, Y and Z is that needs to be taught. What are the pressure points? What, is the, what are the key elements that they want from the education session? Time's money. They don't want to be, um, you know, having money flow out of their cost centre for yet another education session where it's not going to be meaningful to the participants uh, to go and actually affect any change. So you need to survey the system. I really think that it is a, it, it's, it's key as an educator to connect with those, with those key people. Yeah, I, I could not agree with that more. So, I mean, it's like approaching education as a translational activity rather than just a, an intervention coming in I've got a hammer, so everything's a nail. Um, a, a really good, I, I guess, making a functional example of that. So you've got a HHS that's actually requested you to go in and do uh, some education on diabetes, for example. Like the the first question surely has to be, oh, so what's what's raised this on your agenda as something that really needs attention? But that question, out of how often does that question not get asked? How yeah. often does someone go, yeah, I've got a presentation on diabetes, I'll come and give it? Yeah, it happens all the time. All the time. But it, so that that social surveying and system surveying can be as simple to start with of just actually picking the scab off and going. So what's what's raising? Are there red flags? Is why is this a pressure point for you guys what right made now? This necessary. Yeah, yeah, because you might find it's actually uh, some 
some struggles with diabetes ketoacidosis so your investments in really digging into the background and underpinnings of the treatment pathways and the and the clinical pathway for treatment of diabetes the ketoacidosis not the pathophysiology of diabetes exactly right you don't want to steal away that precious time that you've got you want to hit those pressure points pretty much right from the get-go but again it's that it's that rule of threes you know this is what we're talking about then talk about it, and this is what we've covered. Has anyone got any questions around that content? This, you know, job done. Yeah, and how do we ta- how do we actually transfer what we've just learned into practice? Exactly right. Yep. Yep. So I have a, a couple of other little sort of points in and around that sort of surveying the system and you know the the socialisation, and that is um, I've already mentioned that it's important to attend education to benchmark yourself against the type of presenter that you want to be, the type of education that you want to do. I think it's really, really important, and this is for all levels of clinical practice, and that is find a mentor and and be a mentor, but find a mentor. I've got seven mentors. Only four of them are clinicians. The other three are not even in the world of health, and two of them are dead, but they're still mentors. I, I draw from the world of comedy. I draw from the world of, 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 um, of, of great, great comedic stand-up um, comedians. I draw from amazing educators and amazing bedside teachers that I've had through my career where I've thought there are elements of that person that I want to be like. So it's really surveying that system. I have to ask, what comedians? Like if I was driving along listening to this now, I'd be like, who? Who was it? <laughs> um, look. I have always been a fan of Robin Williams. Yeah, okay. and so Robin Williams is without question one of my one of my mentors. I I love the way that his mind works, and when you listen to the subtext of whatever he says, even though he's got a scripted comedic response to everything, um, that guy is just he draws from connections because he's got a depth. It's not just he's not just trying to be funny. He's just organically funny. Yeah. I wish I could just be organically funny, and so. Uh, I, I really think that it's important to introduce humour into, into, into any kind of pre- presentation and it doesn't matter how macabre it is, yeah. how dark the topic might be that you've got to teach. I think that we come from an industry, particularly nurses, that love a little bit of dark humour. and We can relate to that on this podcast. I'm sure you can. And so, so I, I think that there's some licence there to, to be a little bit funny with it. Um, but, you know, be a participant at education so that you can sit, draw from what you love, what you don't love. Five is T for teaching technique. Tell us what that means. Oh, golly. Look, there's so many different teaching techniques. And, and if this was a podcast on how to be a nurse educator, we'd, we're going to need a week. Let's be honest. What we're really trying to address here is just the, um, the techniques that you might use for a presentation. All right? That's standing up in front of a group. Um, I think we have to understand that everybody has different learning styles and I know this sounds like it's been done to death but there is a lot of truth in this idea that um, if you think through the type of event that you want to present, is it a seminar or is it a sim or is it a workshop, is it a conference that you're presenting at, once you think through those things and then recognise that you're going to have really three main types of learner, the visual learner, the, the, the auditory learner or the listening learner and the kinesthetic learner in there, 
I think that it's important to have a little bit of something for each of those learners in every presentation you do. So, as an example, your visual learners, they want to see themselves using the knowledge. They want to picture themselves putting in that cannula. If I'm teaching IV cannulation to a group of, 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 of new graduate nurses, then I, I want them to be visualising the process, not just, um, you know, visualising success. The same way a footy player might might visualise that ball going through the through the uh, the goalposts before he's even kicked the conversion. He's already visualised that it's happened. And I think that that's really important to be able to, to see the end result. Uh, so visual learners love pictures. They love colour. They like contrast. They like images. They love cartoons. They love to see something that's going to make them remember it. They don't want to hear you talk about a heart. They want to see a picture of a heart as you're talking about a heart so that they can picture the way that... You know, you did that wonderful podcast the, the other week with um, with your your cardiac um, one of the, your cardiac yeah. nurses, and she just beautifully went through the flow of blood as it goes through the heart from from the, the right side through the right side yeah. lungs back to the left side and out, which we acknowledged was incredibly challenging with an auditory only platform. But I'm sitting there picturing this blood travelling through. I'm in a little red car and I am driving through the tunnels of that patient's cockles of their heart while that amazing nurse was just explaining it so beautifully I could picture every every inch of what she was suggesting. And I think that that's a great way to be able to teach the visual learner because you're right, you're going to have visual learners that are sitting listening to a podcast. Well, what can they possibly get out of it if they can't visualise what we're talking about? Yeah? Um, the auditory learner, they, they need repetition. Uh, so I use a lot of chanting, which is kind of weird and a little bit geeky, but I'll, I'll state a sentence, then I'll state the sentence again, and then I'll state the sentence and leave some words out and deliberately use that pause to get somebody to fill in the sentence. So I'll state the sentence, I'll state it again, and then I'll use pause to let somebody finish the sentence. There it is. We did it. We you did it. Did it. And that's because that's because inherently we've already started to set up an auditory pattern in our mind. And when you say the words, you hear the words and you can remember the words better. And that's why sometimes a person will read something and then they'll have to read it out loud and it cements it more. It's not just a repetition. It's actually they can hear themselves saying the words in the same way that the visual learner might see themselves performing a task. The auditory learner actually hears your words or their own words in their mind. I really wanted to zoom in on this because I think there can be this illusion that we've got to do all of this at once. And what you're making is there's really clear, distinct moments that you choose. So, and visual doesn't mean filling up a PowerPoint with words. No. It, it means creating a visual construct in someone's mind. That might mind be mapping. with something that's on a, a slide or a model or something, but it might be with words. It's actually creating that, that visual a visual formation or projection into their mind. Same way with the auditory is we might use something visual to actually generate emotional activation as a supportive media for that, but it's not accessing a visual learning. We're not attaching the learning to that visual image that's on the screen. That's used for emotional activation as a supportive media while you're creating an auditory learning experience. Is that a, is that a kind of reasonable way? I of think that's a really, really that. nice way of blending those two concepts because then you bring in that third element and that's the kinesthetic learner. And we, 
we are all, we are all, all three of them. Yeah. It's just that you'll be more dominant as a kinesthetic learner or you'll be more dominant as an auditory learner or more dominant as a visual learner. It doesn't mean that the other two don't work on you. And so if you can triangulate that, you know, that, 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 that beautiful triad of using all three of those techniques, if they can see themselves doing it, they can actually physically do it and they can hear themselves talking through the steps, then being able to bring all of that, that you know, that kinesthetic to the party. Most, most clinicians are kinesthetic. I can talk until I'm blue in the face and show you beautiful pictures of cannulation or defibrillation or, 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 or cardiac compressions. But it's not until you get your hands on the dummy or you get your hands on a cannula or you're actually involved in the process of actually performing the skill do you, does it really make sense to a certain population of learner. So with the kinesthetic learners, they're, real, they're the feelers. If you can attach an emotion, not just physically performing a task like in a simulation, but in a, in a, in a, a seminar where you're in a, a cold sort of seminar room, a, a, a training room, if you can help them to attach some sort of an emotion to what they're learning, they're going to remember the way they felt far more than the absolute content of what you taught. So they understand the content if they can touch the equipment, if they can practice the process and the sequence. They need to have the kinesthetic learners, and we're all a bit kinesthetic. In fact, most of us are mostly kinesthetic. They love to have those little dopamine bombs. If they ask a question, you're right on top of that question and say, that was a great question. Your question was so important, I want everybody's attention because I need to answer that. You know, that just, how does that make you feel? Being able to smile at someone, all of those tiny little things that make you feel, oh, oh that was nice. You're warm and fuzzy. I'm warm yeah. and fuzzy. All yeah. of that sort of stuff just helps to prime the kinesthetic learner to learn. If you can make them feel, then they can, particularly if they're trying to learn new content. You know, if I'm, if I'm taking them through cranial nerves and you're trying to visualise and memorise cranial nerves and you can you can get them to, to, to do some sort of a silly little dance or a kinesthetics... Jesse, you would have seen. Um, I'm not trying to exclude you from this little. That's okay. I feel list. okay. I feel supported. But, Thank you. But Jesse, you and so many other nurses that are listening to this podcast would have seen that crazy German guy doing the different cardiac rhythms. I was on about YouTube. to say you're talking about the black and white cardiac things where he does it with his body. The different totally, rhythms, right? I, I grew up in ICU. Don't you worry. Well, Rob. that's I fantastic, Liz. But I bet that <laughs> I bet that you could probably do that. I bet that you could stand up in front of a yeah. class and do it. And I have. I've actually taught the dance when I'm teaching rhythm interpretation. I don't anymore because I'm not a dancer anymore. But that really just ties into the kinesthetic learner. Mm. If I'm teaching about oxygen transport, I become a red blood cell as I dance across the room delivering oxygen molecules, which are usually bowls of lollies on the, on the table. So that kind of stuff really links into the kinesthetic learner. I think when asking a, a question to a, to a, a good educator, um, a, a kinesthetic learner realises that they... Um, that they're able to be able to feel the information and feel that they are, are are a lot more informed at the end of that interaction. I think that's what's really important. I think one thing that's come up repeatedly and, and sitting in the room with you watching you gesticulate as well, gesticulate, <laughs> just being very clear on that, <laughs> what, the word I just said, um, is movement is obviously a big aspect to totally. how you educate. 
And that's something that takes practice because if left to default, most of us will either clock up 10,000 kilometers pacing around a room without purpose and it can be quite distracting to the learners um, or we'll anchor to a spot or behind a lectern or something. And that's going to really feed back into um, planning for your environment too. So if you're someone that intends to move, then you might need a different sort of amplification option than someone that is really not has no intention to move whatsoever. And that uh, most people will default to a fairly static um, presentation mode when they're starting and learning. But it's really worth considering that movement can be a huge component of either a reset and signposting that you're going to change topic, a demonstration and linking and emotionally activating, like you've said, um, or actually just a, a kind of reset effect and waking people up as well. It does. I, I, I use a lot of movement around the classroom, particularly for, for the difficult learner. So uh, so somebody who might be a bit disruptive, somebody who's who's um, maybe has fallen asleep. You know, some people just – nurses come after night shift to a, to a complex physiology course. I mean, yeah. why, why would you do that to yourself? So I'm going to stand and put my hand on their shoulder and suddenly they, they – I just appear or if somebody's talking to the person that's sitting next to them, I'll go and just move my body and stand over on that side of the room. I do move a lot when I'm teaching and um, sometimes that can be a little bit irritating. I think we'll probably spin off to a future episode. Um, it's about the, the more technical aspects of uh, like things like amplification and understanding AV and stuff like that because I think that's a really also important thing about making the uh, unpredictable predictable in presenting but we like you said we could do a week-long oh, series on nursing we could. education uh, that that sort of stuff comes back to owning your space though you know not only owning your knowledge content but also know what your it and your av is going to be like um i have to have a, a walk around flicker you know the you know oh, do you? About the little walk yeah. around flicker because i don't put me at a lectern i'm just not going to go anywhere near the lectern and always go to the room, you know, a little bit early and make sure the IT is working. Uh, have you got support? If you don't, what would you do if something didn't work? I'm, I'm still really hesitant to put complicated graphics or video or things into talks because I've yep. sat through so many conferences, so many workshops where people are like, oh, this worked at home. and Exactly. Yeah, so there's don't, nothing don't more frustrating. Don't add more stress. Yeah, don't add more stress to yourself. I don't feel it. sorry for you as a presenter if your IT is not working. I just feel frustrated as a learner and you've lost me. Yeah. It's not until morning tea that, that you're going to get me back. Mm. That is really frustrating. So make sure your IT is working and I just gutted if I get there and the, the, the stuff's not the way that I like it. Yeah. The, the half an hour before thing. And, and lock the door and don't let anyone in. Mm. Tell your participants, be there at 8.20 for an 8.30 start. Yeah. And you get there at quarter to eight and make sure everything is running smoothly before the first person walks in to sign the sign-on sheet. Yeah. Awesome. Before um, we go to Liz doing a synopsis of our, our chat, I did want to just check that the astute listeners have probably picked up that Rob's walked us through an OPQRST framework, which is, <laughs> I don't think accidental, that that's also a pain assessment mnemonic approach for like chest pain and other sorts pain, of pain. shortness well. of breath. Yeah. It's pretty much an assessment for everything, isn't it? So a, another great um, sneaky educator technique there, Rob. There it is. <laughs> Familiar, I'd like to call it familiar. 
All right. So let's go through those. So number one was O, own your own topic. And that's really about having good solid knowledge of what it is and who you are as a presenter and how, you know, don't copy anyone else, you know, find your own skin and what works and stuff that's just going to come intuitively rather than, you know, you see people with 10,000 palm cards in their hand and if they drop them, you know, they've got no clue what comes next. Two is the P's and Q, which is your presentation qualities. And you gave us the eight P's of a great presentation. And so the first was passion, your PowerPoint, uh, which is an aid. It's not your whole talk. Uh, Your personality, projection, your pace, your pitch, pause and progression. Number three is take the time to research your audience. Uh, don't go in blind. Who are you talking to? What is it that's prompted them to coming and asking you to speak today? What knowledge do they always already have? What knowledge do they need? And always be prepared that there is going to be someone in the group that is naturally argumentative, disruptive, conflictual, uh, that many of us will be talking to people who um, may have some neurodivergence And we also may have people that are fanning after us and interrupting us in a positive way. How are you going to deal with that and think that through before the day? Number four is S, which stands for social surveys and how to seek support. And this is where you're saying like survey your actual system. Know what you're doing, why you're there, what they need from you and how do you connect with those key stakeholders. Jesse made the point that education is a translational activity Um, and so really work out, you know, like who are your mentors in all of this? What do you want to copy, steal from them? What are the things that you need to own for yourself? And I love the point that you said, you know, always think how can we inject humour into anything that we're doing? Your Your fifth and final point is T for teaching technique and in this digital age, there are so many ways that we can educate. So you talked about, is it a seminar? Is it didactic? Is it a workshop? Is it a simulation? Is it a podcast? Is it a, you know, hands-on, hands-off? You really need to think through all, all the sorts of techniques that are available to you and make sure it matches with the group that you've got. And then keep in mind, you know, that there will be visual, auditory and kinesthetic learners And at the best presenters actually find clever ways to introduce all of those mediums throughout their talk. So for the visual, think about your PowerPoint presentation, think about pictures, colours, dummies, you know, anything that, that, that people can look at. For your auditory learners, think about reflection, repeating sentences... And I love the point about chanting where you say something several times and then start to miss words so that people have to call out and be part of that as a way of laying down that memory. For your kinesthetic learners, so obviously that's the hands-on, but you sort of of pointed out that as the presenter, you can walk around, touch someone on the shoulder, uh, get them to feel, touch something. Uh, If you're describing about how the heart works, you move around, you put lollies on this table, this is where these cells go so that there is something, but the best presenters actually find clever ways to incorporate all three of those. How did I go? I reckon you nailed that. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. Do you uh, need a job? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we've got less less people out there who feel so glossophobic, 
But all of us, you know, I the love three. love that word. I word know, of the day. I know. But the three of us, you know, like we all started off educating when we weren't experts on anything. So start small, start with the mundane, start with the familiar, build your confidence. Get a mentor. Get a mentor. You know, find find your vibe, find the thing that is how you like to do it. Get your feedback from from the audience, what works, what doesn't work, and then go and educate. And I'd actually like to acknowledge that that's been a surprising part of doing this podcast is we've actually found that probably I'd say over 50% of our guests, it's been their first defined educating experience as being a guest on the podcast. So that's been a really exciting thing of being part of those first steps and hopefully it gets a little bit addictive to some of those awesome nurses that we've met. Thank you so much, Rob. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.